Welcome, everybody, to Kimura Kimura on Wednesday, June 21st. Beautiful, overcast day here in Abbotsford, British Columbia. I am East Spencer Kite, friendly neighborhood Spencer man. It is Wednesday, as I said. That means one question for every fight. For UFC Jacksonville, UFC on ABC5, headlined by Josh Emmett and Ilya Tapuria. A really terrific card top to bottom, in my opinion. A few real pivotal matchups in a couple key divisions. Some prospects getting back into the cage. Some sophomores making some appearances that I'm really curious to see. But we'll get right into it. We'll start, as we always do, at the top of the marquee. Josh Emmett, Ilya Tapuria. My question is just how good is Ilya Tapuria? Now, of course, the answer is we don't know. We're only going to find out as he continues to take fights like this. I spoke to Tapuria yesterday, wrote about him for a story that is up now on UFC.com and likened him to Schrodinger's cat, which for those that don't necessarily know, aren't super nerds like me, Irwin Schrodinger's exercise essentially says that a cat placed in a sealed box can be thought of as either alive or dead, depending on whether an event happened or didn't happen. And you don't know the outcome until you open the box. Tapuri is sort of that guy for me because he says all the right things. He's done all the right things thus far. 5-0 and in the UFC, four straight finishes. Great performance against Bryce Mitchell last time out. But now he's still got to take those next tests. He's still got to continue matriculating up the rankings. And Josh Emmett is that next test. He might be the best featherweight in the world. We just don't know yet. And that's why this fight excites me. That's why this fight intrigues me. That's why Tapuria is such a fascinating fighter to me. He has all the tools. He has all of the weapons. Mixes them up really well. We see it in terms of his striking. He works body and head. He throws some leg kicks. Got Bryce Mitchell to switch stances after one leg kick. Swept him off his feet. The fact that he got hurt badly, sat down by Jai Herbert and rallied in London is a huge positive for me. It's a big check in the, okay, this kid's got it box. Because that was an opportunity where, okay, I got blasted. This isn't my night. This guy's just going to finish me. He got sat down and right away as Jai Herbert closed the distance, he went in looking to wrestle up into a takedown and did. Wrestled into, I could push this guy back into the fence. And sure, he got touched up the rest of that round and he was left bloody and he was left leaking from the nose. But he came out in the second round and he put a right hand on Jai Herbert's jaw that spun him inside out. And that's up a division to then return and dominate Bryce Mitchell the way he did, where he subbed him out quickly once he got him there, right? Got Bryce Mitchell hurt. Mitchell looked to wrestle, and Tapuria was like, nope, I'm in charge. Here's what we're doing. Away we go. Terrific performances thus far. I honestly think that there hasn't been enough made of Tapuria's performances so far. The run of opponents is great. Yusuf Zalal, Damon Jackson, Ryan Hall, Jai Herbert, and Bryce Mitchell. That is a great run, and I have a story coming out on OSDB Sports on Friday about this being sort of the perfect build for him so far and wanting to see the UFC do this with more guys. And this step on Friday, sorry, on Saturday, excuse me, is the right progression. Five rounds, main event, Josh Emmett coming off a tough loss in an interim title fight against Yair Rodriguez. He's a real test. He's a dangerous dude. He's got more than just that right hand that he goes hunting for and that we talk about all the time with him. 
He's somebody that if Tapuria makes mistakes and if he gets a little comfortable, as he did against Jai Herbert and as Harry said to me when we were talking yesterday, if he gets settled in there the way that Armin Saryukin did against Joachim Silva last weekend, we can see a similar thing. We can see a similar situation where Tapuria gets cracked the way that Saryukin did, but it may not result in, okay, I just need to wrestle. It may result in, we're no longer undefeated and I'm looking up at the lights wondering what happened. That's one possibility, and that's why I'm fascinated by this. This fight should help answer my question of just how good he is. The other piece of this to me, and I talked to him about it for the piece, is if he goes out and dominates here, I can see a path to Ilya Tapuria earning a championship opportunity next time out. He believes, I go out and get a win, I'm next. He's going to 290. He said he wants to be there to watch his next opponent compete live. He's hoping it's Volkanovski. He wants to beat the long-reigning champion. Get all of that. That's the next step. But if you just think about it, if you just look at the division, right? If Volkanovski does go out and win, he's already beaten. That means he beats Yair. He's already beaten Max three times. He's already beaten Brian Ortega, who hasn't yet returned from his injury last year in Long Island. Number four is Arnold Allen. He is coming off a loss to Max Holloway. You're not running him into a championship opportunity. Then it's Josh Emmett. Sorry, number four, I believe, is Josh Emmett. Number five is Arnold Allen. You're not running either of those guys into championship opportunities. Then we're getting into guys like Chan Sun Jung, who is booked against Max Holloway later this summer. And so the opportunity presents itself that a big performance and a Volkanovski win, these could be the guys that are facing each other towards the end of the year. Now, there's some other possibilities that we'll get into closer to 290 about what Volk's future is and whether he makes a move all the way up to lightweight. But Tapuria can put himself sort of in the clubhouse as the as the pole position leader for the next championship opportunity with a big performance. And if he does, we're going to go into those next fights kind of like we did with Islam Mahashev as he was progressing along. Just wondering, how good is this guy? And we may not find out until he gets in there against the absolute best the division has to offer. Co-main event on Saturday is Amanda Hibas versus Macy Barber. A terrific fight at flyweight. And my question is, which flyweight is ready to ascend to contender status? So the stats on each of them. Hibas is 29 years old. She is 12 and 3 overall. 6 and 2 in the UFC. Barber is 25, 12 and 2 overall. 7 and 2 in the UFC. Hibas has faced better competition overall. She has better wins. Barber has the more room to grow and the potential to improve more between fights, which is why I find this matchup fascinating. We've seen sort of the best version of Amanda Hibas in a few of these recent victories. She looked very good against Viviani Araujo. She looked very good against Verna Jandiroba. She looked pretty good in her loss to Caitlin Chukagian, which was sort of an impromptu flyweight fight that she's now decided to stick around. She has that win over Macy, or excuse me, over Mackenzie Dern earlier in her career. She lost to Marina Rodriguez and didn't look good in that fight, but that's fine. These things happen in MMA sometimes, as Harry would tell me. As for Barber, she's on a four-fight winning streak. She's done really well since coming back from the loss to Roxanne Modafari and Alexa Grasso, the back-to-back losses, I should say. That loss to Grasso continuing to age well as she is currently the champion. We've seen Barber sort of settle in and figure out who she is as a fighter. The best way to deploy her skills, her weapons, her abilities. 
at the start of her career and in those fights where she was struggling a little bit, she was trying to be someone that she's not. Macy Barber at her best should be a grimy fighter, should be a grinder, should be in there looking to use her strength, her physicality, smash home elbows along the fence, drag people to the canvas and rough them up on the ground. Not somebody that's looking to kickbox in space. She just doesn't have that in her arsenal yet. It's not a, a piece of her skill set that she's best at. As she continues to figure this out, she's going to continue, ideally, in theory, to put it all together and really, I think, build into that, I'm going to just be the grinder. I'm going to be the gritty sandpaper fighter in this division. And I'll be interested to see on Saturday if she can get in there and kind of wear on Amanda Hebos a little bit, or if Hebos is able to pick at her from space. I honestly think this one comes down to how this one is fought. If Hebos can keep it in space, I favor her. If Barbara can get inside and decides to really work and push to get inside, I think it could be interesting. I think it comes down to the decisions that Macy Barber makes. And I'm really curious to see how it all plays out. Heavyweights in the middle of the main card. I know, right? Here we go. Austin Lane debuts against Justin Taffa. And my question is, will Taffa spoil Lane's homecoming? So Austin Lane was drafted by the Jacksonville Jaguars in the 2010 NFL draft. Played there for a couple seasons. Washed out of the NFL. Moved to MMA. He is 35 years old. 12-3 and as a pro. Won six straight. Victories over Juan Adams, Tavares Jack Gordon, excuse me. Uh, competed on... Contender Series several years ago got knocked out by Greg Hardy in Greg Hardy's first appearance. He looks good on paper, right? Like when you look at his record and it's 12 and 3 and he's 6-5 and he's a pro at former pro athlete, like former NFL defensive lineman, he looks really good. But this is a huge step up. Justin Taffa is coming off two first round stoppage wins with knee surgery in between. Looked very good in knocking out Parker Porter last time out. He has fast, heavy hands. This is a fight where somebody's getting laid out, most likely in the first round. I haven't looked at the odds yet. That'll come later in the week for the betting show. But if there's a, on the under 1.5 rounds is getting bet heavily, unless it's way too much juice. And I'm just curious to see like how Austin Lane handles a step up like this. This is, you're now on the big stage. There's a little bit of fighting at home. There's a little bit of people know who you are, so you don't want to get embarrassed in front of familiar faces and Justin Taffa for being 29 years old and, and somewhat limited as a fighter has shown he can crack and shown he can win on this, on this stage at this level. And so this one's interesting to me just to see how the newcomer fares after finally punching his ticket to the UFC a couple seasons back on the contender series or last season, I should say on the contender series. Featherweight matchup, David on David Onama. I almost said on Yamada. I was listening to a football podcast on the way back here from an appointment. David Onyamata is a former New Orleans Saints defensive lineman. David Onama versus Gabriel Santos. And my question is, what has Onama done since his last appearance? So his last fight was in August of last year. Wild majority decision loss to Nate Landwehr, where both were hurt, both were exhausted. Neither guy quit. 15 minutes of ridiculousness. Physically, David Onama has the tools. You look at him 
and the build and the length and the equipment that he's working with is very good. The criticism for me, for Harry, as we used to talk about on the next day takeaways back in the day when he and I did it together, was sort of the understanding of how to use them. It was one of Harry's kind of sticking points that if this guy could just figure out and learn how to use a jab, how to use a teep kick up the middle, how to use that low kick more, he'd be even better because he has those tools and those characteristics. He hasn't fought since August, which was that fight with Landwehr. Since then, all the James James Krause stuff has happened. Everybody that was at that gym, Gloria MMA, has had to disperse and figure out where they're going to train. He is now at Factory X like a lot of his former teammates and, and still current teammates. And so I'm really curious to see how Mark Montoya has worked with him over these last several months to dial some of this stuff in. It is their first camp together. It is the first fight together, which is always, you know, a feeling out process. And, and I don't expect him to be all the problems solved, all the, all the changes made yet. But as he dialed some stuff in, as he figured a little bit of things out, have they worked on one key thing? Let's just bang home that low kick. Let's just bang that teep kick up the middle. Let's just stick that jab more often. Let's use our length. Gabriel Santos looked very good in his debut against Lerone Murphy, an undefeated fighter in the division. Dropped a split decision. It was a good competitive fight. He is the favorite in this matchup going into this fight. So there's a lot of pressure on Onama in this one. And I just want to see how he does. Final fight of the main card. It is in the middleweight division. Brendan Allen versus Bruno Silva. And my question here is, will Brendan Allen avoid the banana peel? Here's what I mean. Historically, this is where he stumbles. Right when you're starting to believe in him, right when you're starting to feel like, okay, Brendan Allen's figured it out. Here we go. He stumbles. So he had three straight wins to start his UFC career. Gets booked with Sean Strickland. Catches a loss. Looked awful. Just looked awful. Gets two more wins. Gets booked against Chris Curtis. Goes out. Looked awful. Overwhelmed, knocked out, finished, whole nine yards. Didn't look good at all. He's now got four straight wins, three submissions in there. Beat Andre Muniz last time out, submitted him in the third round. And he gets Bruno Silva, which is a fight that on paper he should win. Right? Like he was booked to face Jack Hermanson, going to be headlining, going to be a main event for the first time against a top 10 guy. Hermanson get, gets hurt. They reset Brendan Allen, find him an opponent, and it's Bruno Silva. So this is a step back from who he beat and who he was supposed to fight, which is why it's the banana peel, right? This is the trap fight. This is the one where you go in there thinking too highly of yourself, thinking too lightly of Bruno Silva, and for whatever limitations he has, my guy can still crack. 20 knockouts and 23 victories, he can put it on you. And if you're not careful, if you're not defensively responsible, you could get knocked out and once again be in that spot where everybody started to believe in you. You broke into the rankings. You're finally making some headway. And then we go backwards. This is a huge fight for Brendan Allen. I don't think people are going to talk about it in those terms. Maybe because they don't see it that way. Maybe I'm just overvaluing it or, or overhyping it. But this feels like a massive, massive fight for Brendan Allen, who at 25, has a good overall record in the UFC and feels poised to make a little run here. Always room at middleweight. Got to get through this one. This one's the critical one. You've, you've got to avoid the banana peel on Saturday.
It's Keyboard Kimura Podcast. One question for every fight for UFC Jacksonville, UFC on ABC5, UFC Emmett versus Tapuria. We moved to the prelims, closed out in the welterweight division, Neil Magny versus Phil Rowe. My question is, will this be a changing of the guard? So Neil Magny and Phil Rowe are quite similar. They are the same height. They have the same reach. And they have very similar approaches. Neil Magny's 35, 29 fights in the UFC. Rowe is 32, just four fights in. Magny uses his big, long jab and movement often to set up grappling. Rowe uses his good grappling to allow him to get loose with his hands. He's coming in on three straight TKO victories. Neil Magny is Neil Magny. And this feels like one of those fights for me where 35, this will be his 30th appearance in the UFC. Like if Neil Magny is going to start receding a little bit more and slipping a little bit further back, it's going to be against a guy like Phil Rowe who, who nullifies and can neutralize potentially some of those things that have always been beneficial to Neil Magny. He's not going to have a freakish reach advantage here where he can just stand on the outside of his jab and stand at the end of his jab and stick it in Phil Rowe's face because Phil Rowe has the same reach. Phil Rowe can do those same things and he hits a little harder and he has good wrestling and he has good grappling training down at Fusion XL with Julian Williams. So this feels like an opportunity. If Phil Rowe is going to be a real player in the middle, in the welterweight division, excuse me, and Neil Magny is going to slide back a little bit, this can be where they flip positions. Conversely, this could very well be another instance of Neil Magny being like, yeah, not yet. We're not, not you. There's going to be some guys that get past me. Sure, it's going to happen. Shavkat Rachmanov earlier this year. These things are going to happen, but it's not going to be Phil Rowe. And I want to see how it plays out. This is fascinating to me in terms of the, the dynamics of these two guys and the similarities between them. I want to see how it plays out. Veteran versus younger dude. Veteran versus less experienced dude, more, more reasonably, right? 32 and 35, not a huge age difference, but tons of experience different. And I want to see Neil Magny continues to be Neil Magny or if Phil Rowe says, no, I'm the Neil, it's my turn to be Neil Magny. I'm going to be Neil Magny 2.0 going forward. We stick around welterweight, Randy Brown versus Wellington Terman. My question is, will Brown show weight class wasn't the issue for Terman? So welterweight debut for Wellington Terman, who went three and four at middleweight. He trains out in Danbury, Connecticut with Glover Teixeira and that crew. Brown is nine and five in the UFC, but the losses are two good dudes and Michael Graves in his promotional debut. He is, to me, a perfect second 15 guy. I talk about this all the time. You have the top 15, then you have that next set of 15 who are experienced, veteran hands, polished guys dangerous opponents for any of these people trying to work their way forward as Terman is here. He's got good wins over Mickey Gall, Brian Barbarina, Warley Alves, Cowboy Oliveira, Chaos Williams. Like there's some good wins in there. The losses, as I said, to good people outside of the debut. Jack Della Maddalena, Vicente Luque, Nico Price in that fight where Nico Price hit him with the hammer fists from off his back, I believe, in Lincoln, Nebraska. And then Bilal Muhammad, which like, if you're looking for for losses that have aged really well, losing to Bilal Muhammad in the midst of his progression certainly ages well. Some people think, and I, I, I wonder if Terman is of this mindset, that 
size and the division was the problem for him. I wonder if he sits there and comes off that last loss at middleweight after a couple of wins over Sam Alvey and Misha Serkinov and goes, you know, I'm just, I just, at 26, I'm, I'm out physical, I'm out strength. I don't have the size and the weight and the mass to deal with these guys at 85 anymore. Let me get down to 170 where some of that stuff is nullified. I don't think that's the case. I think the challenge thus far has been skills and IQ. I think Wellington Terman is kind of a, a one, not a one dimensional fighter because he can throw a little bit and he can grapple a little bit, but a guy that is just not as good as maybe he believes he is. And maybe some people think him to be, we're going to find out Saturday. Well, Randy Brown, terrific test, great measuring stick. But I think we see on Saturday that it wasn't the division. The problem wasn't middleweight. The problem is just, he's not quite as good at some of these guys that he's facing and some of these people that he's stepping into the octagon with. Move to the lightweight division. Mateusz Rombetsky versus Loik Radzibov. Get ready to say that one a couple of times this weekend. Whoever is calling the fights, I believe John Anik because it's on ABC. My question here is which sophomore keeps moving forward? I love this fight. I love the stylistic clash between two powerful grapplers. I love that we are getting both of them facing each other in their second appearance in the UFC. So Radzibov is more polished, more experienced, fought in PFL a little bit. He's been in there with some guys. We know a little bit more about him and where his floor rests and maybe even where his ceiling rests, but we'll figure that part out as we go. Rombetsky is, has more to prove after a good, but not great performance in his debut against Nick Fiore on short notice. Fiore coming in on short notice, not Rombetsky. He looked great on the contender series, getting his win in the first round. So far, it has looked from limited sample size. Like if you can get him out of the first round, there's opportunities to win because he tired a great deal in that fight with Nick Fiore. Radzibov, guy that's going to come out here and, and wrestle and happily engage on the ground. And I just want to see like which of these two dudes is more ready to get moving forward at 55. I think the winner goes right into the middle of the pack here. Like this isn't a... We're going to take our time and progress really slowly and fight three, four, five fights way outside of the top 15, even outside of that second 15. I think the winner here gets a step up and gets a, gets a real step up and a chance to face somebody of, of substance. And I want to see how it plays out. I'm leaning Radzibov. Teasing this one early. I'm leaning Radzibov because if you like me, I think the veterans got a little bit more, a little bit more experience, a little bit more opportunity to win. I believe he's the underdog right now. So if you want to get in on it, check out your book and, and figure it out. But I really am fascinated by this fight and want to see how it plays out. Next up in the strawweight division, Tabitha Ricci versus Jillian Robertson. My question is who's ready for another step up in competition. This is another fight I adore. Like, if anybody comes out in the next three days before the fights kick off on Saturday, which I believe is an early start time because it is on ABC. I think the main card starts at noon um, Pacific, I believe. Going to double check that here in a, in a second. But if anybody complains about this card and is like, ah, oh, there's not any. We've got Tabitha Ricci and Jillian Robertson on the prelims, folks. Come on. This is a great fight. Tabitha Ricci. 
Perfect 3-0 at 115. Lost her debut at flyweight two men on Fioro. Certainly not something to hang your head about. Dramatically outsized. Just went up, took the fight, jumped in, got into the UFC, goes down to 115 and has looked great thus far, coming off a second round submission win over Jessica Panay in her last appearance. Robertson returned to strawweight in her last outing, got a submission win over Piera Rodriguez. She has a ton of experience. She has the most submission wins for any female fighter in UFC history, which is an impressive feat to hold given some of the females that have earned or have submission pedigrees, right? You automatically think Ronda Rousey in the armbar, but it's Jillian Robertson. This to me is a fight where there's the potential to see sort of the limits of each fighter exposed here. And I think it really comes down to who is able to dictate the terms of engagement. Jillian Robertson is great when she's in top position, when she is controlling the grappling exchanges on the ground. And if she can't get there, I wonder if she's a little bit flawed. I wonder if there's sort of an inability to work back to her feet and to keep Ricci off of her with her striking. Will she be too willing to go to the ground? Conversely, can Ricci avoid being too comfortable herself going to the ground, too trusting in her own grappling abilities, which are outstanding, and just accepting sort of bad positions and bad spots, believing she'll be able to sweep through and advance in all of these things. I think this is a fascinating fight. I think the winner has potential to climb into, sort of move forward even further in the top 15. I was going to say climb into the top 15, but I believe Tabitha Ricci is currently ranked. So the winner keeps going forward and gets closer to a top 10 matchup. And once you get there, there's there's opportunities that abound. This should be a ton of fun. They're both 28. They're both in their primes. They're both putting it together. Both have looked very good of late. We'll see how they look on Saturday. Move to the flyweight division, Jalgis Zhumagulov versus Joshua Van. And my question is simple. Will this fight even happen? And I ask that simply because right now it feels like Zhumagulov is cursed. And I feel terrible for it. So he drops two straight split decisions. One to Jeff Molina, where even Jeff Molina was surprised that he earned the nod and one to Charles Johnson, which was a close fight, admittedly. After that loss, he says, I'm retiring, that's it. Sick of these judges, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. Decides to keep fighting, gets booked for UFC 288 against Nate Manis. Nate Manis gets injured, has to withdraw. Rafael Estevam is tagged in to face him. Get through to Friday, day before the fights. Estevam botches the weight cut, fight scrapped. Gets booked for last week against Felipe Buenas. Get up to Friday. Medical issue, fight scrapped. Now they tag in Joshua Van, going to make his UFC debut, first fighter from Myanmar to compete inside of the octagon. He is a natural flyweight, so there shouldn't be any issue in terms of making weight, but we'll knock on wood. And like, I just I just sit here and I hope it happens. I think Jalgazhu Magulov is maybe the best one in five fighter in UFC history. I think he is far better then his record dictates, as I said, those two straight split decision losses. You flip those into victories, and we're talking about a guy that's three and two instead of one and five. I just hope he gets to compete. I want to see him compete. I enjoy watching him fight. I love the new hairdo. He's rocking a little bit of a, a little bit of a Patty Pimblet sort of one punch man kind of mix up here. And I just hope he gets in there. It's got to be. It's got to be gutting. It's got to be crushing 
to prepare and prepare and prepare and think you're there and then have it fall through the day before, not once, but twice already this year. So I hope it happens. Look forward to seeing it. Next up, Trevor Peak versus Chepe Marichal. And my question is, when does Trevor Peak's run end? So, dude is 8-0 as a pro with one no contest, all finishes, and he's just a wild man, right? He's just, I'm, I say this next part as kindly and as nicely as possible. There seems to be no technique. There seems to be no technical abilities. This seems to be fighting out back of the Walmart kind of style. Like, we joked back in the day that Jason Knight, who is currently on the Ultimate Fighter Season 31, and will be competing soon as a part of Team Chandler, who is up 4-0 on Team McGregor. You should be watching The Ultimate Fighter. It's really good so far this year. But we used to joke that Jason Knight was Hick Diaz, right? He's redneck Diaz because he talks a bunch of shit and he kind of fights the same way. Trevor Peak is like off-brand Kirkland version Diaz without any of the technique. He's just a lunatic in there. His fight against Eric Gonzalez was just two dudes swinging hammers trying to put each other out it was what i envision two guys meeting out back of the walmart looks like we want to settle things you pissed me off let's go back here and throw some hands and see what happens at some point someone is going to make him pay i'm not sure if it's chepe this weekend we'll see he has a great deal of experience on the regional circuit a couple of good wins over use of zalal and pat sabatini couple notable losses, Gregor Gillespie, Bryce Mitchell, Sean Soriano, Joe Anderson Brito. He's a guy that, in theory, on paper, could test Trevor Peak here. That's that's where this is for me. Like, Trevor Peak doesn't feel like a elite UFC guy. He doesn't feel like somebody that's going to put together three, four, five, six wins and, and go on a run. He feels like a guy that's going to be in entertaining fights for as long as it lasts. And going to go out there and just throw bombs with people. And we'll see if it it continues to produce results. I feel like it could stop here. This is one of those spots where I feel like it could, could go astray for him. But we'll see. And as I sort of say regularly in the fight-by-fight fight preview, the process of determining the answer to this, the process of figuring out who wins this one, going to be a whole lot of fun to watch on Saturday morning. Two fights left, featherweight division, Jamal Emmers versus Jack Jenkins. My question is, how does Far Jack look in his follow-up appearance? So, Jack Jenkins is a Dana White Contender Series grad, grinded out a win over Don Shanus in his debut at UFC 284. I spoke to him before that fight. I asked him about the pressure. He said, nah, no pressure, mate. Love doing this. This is all I want to do. But in my opinion, not saying he was lying to me, not saying anything like that, but there had to be heaps of pressure in that spot. UFC debut, fighting at home, first of the Australians out to the octagon, out to the cage, has to be some pressure. There just has to be. Dana White wasn't super impressed with his performance. I believe he called him a one-trick pony coming off of the contender series. Still gave him his contract, still gave him the opportunity to compete. It was a good but not great performance against Don Shanus, who has subsequently been released. And so this is a chance to impress. This is an opportunity to show, potentially, I'm better than that first showing. I've got more to me than what we've seen thus far. Jamal Emmers is, for me, one of those better-than-you-know kind of guys. He's 2-2 and in the UFC. 
but it's good quality competition the whole way along. Strong outing last time against Hussein Ashkabov, a guy in sort of a similar position, right? A little bit of hype, a little bit of opportunity coming in with a nice record and just got outmatched, got out, got out wrestled, got outstruck by the more experienced Jamal Emmers. And he's looking to repeat it here. Similar to the Peak and Marischal fight, this should be fun. I'm really excited to see how the dynamics of this one play out. Both are well-rounded. Both have grappling pedigrees, wrestling pedigrees. I want to see how it plays out. I think Jack Jenkins is a good prospect, somebody that can maybe get a little bit of an accelerated push. He's already 30 years old. But these are the tests. These are the matchups. I love these fights. Sophomore guy getting in there against somebody that is underrated, unheralded, but really goddamn good. If you know what you're watching, if you know who these people are, this is a great fight early in the fight card. Speaking of great fights early in the fight card, the opener in the flyweight division, Tatsuro Tyra versus Clemson Rodriguez. And my question is, can Tyra take another step forward? He is, as you know, if you've been listening to me throughout the last couple of years, one of my favorite prospects in the UFC, 23 years old, 13 and 0 overall, 3 and 0 in the UFC, coming off a first round submission win, second round submission win before that. He is poised, he is calm, he is sound everywhere, takes what he's given, like just a wonderful fighter to watch, just a tremendous dude to watch, especially at 23. Rodriguez is a tough test, though. He is aggressive. He's dangerous. We saw him on that same Perth card at 284, go out and run through Shannon Ross in 59 seconds. I think he comes across the cage looking to engage, looking to take the fight to Tyra right out of the gate. I think both of these guys could, with the right matchups in a little bit of time, be top 15 fixtures in the flyweight division. It's a real good test for each guy. I think the winner does move forward towards an opportunity against a top 15 opponent next time out. And I just want to see as we continue to progress with Tyra, as he continues to sort of edge forward up the rankings, up the divisional ladder, how good is he, right? For me, this is sort of real early stages of that question that we kick things off with. Just how good is he? I think he's really good. I think he is a top 10, a guy that has top 10 potential if not top five, if not fight for the title. I don't want to say, I don't want to just come out and do the like, he's going to be champion because I don't know. And I don't want to make these boisterous over the top claims because this stuff is hard and things go wrong in fights and in careers. But in terms of what we've seen so far, he's really good. And he has the potential to be to be special. And I want to see how that translates on Saturday in his toughest test to date. This is why you continue to fight forward. This is why we keep moving guys up the ranks into tougher matchups. It is one of the pieces I absolutely adore about this, this sport. It's one of the reasons I love this fight card. Before we get out of here, as always, QR code, keyboard Kimura on Substack. Scan that, get yourself signed up for free for five bucks, for 50 bucks for the year. Get you all of the content in audio form or written form, depending on how I'm putting it out and what I'm putting out that particular day. It will be every day because I do stuff every day. I apologize if it floods your email 
and it's annoying to you, but I want you to have as much information as possible going into and coming out of these events so that you identify and learn some athletes that you're interested in, find some fighters that, that pique your interest. And we go from there, check out the boys at one bone, onebonebrand.com. Another drop coming later this week. I believe yacht shirts dropped last week. It's great stuff, man. It really just is spot with Jamal Hill. I got the email yesterday, light heavyweight champ, Jamal Hill, hanging out, working with the boys. Love to see it. Love to see it. If you don't take my advice, take the advice of the UFC light heavyweight champion, sweet dreams, Hill at one bone brand on Twitter and Instagram. If you do drop by, if you do make a purchase, use the code ESK 20 at checkout, my initials ESK and the number 20 to get 20% off. That lets you know that you heard about it from me. And I want them to know that you're hearing about it from me. I want you to, I want them to know that we're out here repping the brand always, every day, all day. One bone family is strong. The community is great and it's only getting bigger. Want you to be a part of it. Lastly, there we go. At Spencer Kite on Twitter and Instagram, pumping out the content here, putting it all up there. So follow there if you want to get all of these things, not in your email. And while it'll still come to your email, but if you want to just see that new content is up via Twitter or Instagram, that's how you can find me for now. I will bid you adieu. I will be back tomorrow with 10 things I like Friday for the double dip, the punch drunk predictions and the betting show. Saturday will be around during the event for about Saturday's action Sunday into the next day takeaways. And then we're into the next week. And then we're another week closer to UFC 290. I'm starting to get hyped. Got my assignments. Started looking at it a little bit. Starting to get excited. Let's go. Let's go.